Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. Today's scripture is from Luke chapter 1, 39 to 43 and 45. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the town in the Hess country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she explained, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to see me? As soon as the sound of her greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Christmas is almost here. Are you ready? Have you made the gift list, baked the cookies, and prepared to meet Jesus this year? As we light the pink candle, also known as Mary's candle of love, let's think about both Elizabeth and Mary waiting expectantly for the birth of their sons. Both women trust in God's promise to them, and they are blessed among women, not above women. Do you trust the scripture promises like Mary? Can you see God's purpose in the lives of ordinary people in our community? Who can we share our story of God's love and eternal redemption with this Christmas season? Our journey of repentance and rejoicing is as important today as ever. Be prepared and expect blessings this Christmas season. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message of love. Thank you for being our Lord and Savior. Pardon our sins and save us in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we continue to taking as we continue in taking a look at the virtues of this holiday season. The most profound one is the one that we celebrate today. The advent of our Lord has been an observance of the church since the days before its consolidation in Rome. The four cardinal virtues, hope, peace, joy, and, but no ordinary love, are the guiding lights of Christian discipleship. Go ahead and take out your notes because I want to 
give you a foundation for what we're going to be talking about really quickly. Unfortunately, in the English language, we have consolidated a bunch of former, uh, former words for love into a single word for love. In fact, it wasn't so long ago that uh, the word charity was listed in many of our Bible translations for the type of love that Jesus expresses and talks about in Koine Greek in the New Testament. Now, what do I mean by that? Not all love is love. Right now, our society is trying to teach us that. It's trying to reinforce uh, that, but it's simply not the case. And this was known since ancient times. In Hebrew, there are more than seven words to describe love in a variety of ways. In Greek, there are 12, nine of which is in the New Testament. So not all kinds of love are love. In English, we had the same thing. Affection, love, charity. But it's the charity one that I want, to th- I want us to consider today. In your New Testaments, when Jesus is talking about the love that we should have in our hearts, when He's discussing the love that He Himself is exemplifying, In the phrase, greater love have no one than this, that he give his life for his his friend. The word that is penned there by the authors of the New Testament is agapeo. Agape in the act. The sacrificial, self-giving love of God. It is the love that Paul describes when he says that love is patient, love is kind. Love believes all things, forgives all things, holds no grudges. When he goes into that that wonderful passage about all the things that love is, he's talking about the self-sacrificing love of agape, of what would later in English be termed charity. Now you can understand how its meaning evolved over time for being that kind of self-sacrificing love to just the giving of oneself for the embitterment of others. But when it was originally penned, in what would become the the Jerusalem Bible and the King James Bible and so forth, what it meant was a love that deprived the self in favor of somebody else. That's the love of God. A love that provides us with another term that I'm going to talk about, the term grace. Now, we have mix represented the term grace too. We think of graciousness as someone who is polite, someone who is... um, a gentlemanly type of person, ladylike, and so forth. Grace, in its rawest definition, is the unmerited love of somebody else. When we talk about the grace of the Bible, we are talking about a love that cannot be earned. We're talking about an agape that cannot be earned by definition. In other words, it's someone does something for you out of grace for no other reason than the fact that they love you. Forgiveness is something else that I'm going to talk about really quickly. Forgiveness in its raw definition means to cancel out a debt. Please get this down. Forgiveness means to cancel out a debt in full. To cancel out a debt in full. For the Christian, this is particularly poignant 
because of the last word of Christ from the cross. While hanging from a Roman crucifix, Christ yells out the Greek word, the word that is penned in Greek, tetelestai, which your Bibles more often than not render as it is finished. But in all reality, in the legal form of that word, it means paid in full. You are forgiven, is what he is saying. Your sin debt, the red that you had on your ledger from the time that you could realize the difference between right and wrong and defaulted to the wrong every time, all of that has been paid in full, banished from your account. When you are seen before the Heavenly Father, when the judgment day comes, if you are in Christ, if you have accepted His sacrifice on your behalf, then He does not see the debt. He sees the price that was paid. That is forgiveness. Paid in full. That is grace. A love that you did not earn, but was given to you for no other reason that God loves you. And that love is a love that is so profound that it, it, that it prompted God to sacrifice from His own to give for you. Amen? If you want to take out your copy of God's Word with me, you want to turn to the prophet Isaiah in just a second. Uh, we also want to discuss, very in brief, the difference between... Um, the humanistic end of life and what God compels us to do. Love, agape love doesn't just sustain us through. It doesn't just pay on our behalf. It transforms us. Now, there is a lot of projection out there in the world, I'm ashamed to say, that takes Christ and says that not only will He accept you as you were, He does not call us to transform. The Bible is very clear on this. Before you are forgiven, you have to repent. There has to be a willingness to change. Come just as you are. That does not, that's, that is true. But come with a penitent heart. More than that, you have to expect to be changed by Him. Every time that Christ gives us an example of what love looks like, He tacks on the phrase, go and do Likewise, heed the example, change your way of doing things. Become like God, be holy as I am holy. And when you confront someone who is in sin, when that person uh, comes to Christ begging for forgiveness, when they're repentant of their sin, he says, you are forgiven, now go and do no more. He calls us to turn away from sin and self, turn away from the focus on who we are and turn into the person that Christ has called us to be. Turn into His image. Be challenged by His love and go away transformed. The goals of life from a human-centric point of view are this, the glorification of the self. That translates to the foundational sin, which is pride. Pride is characterized by self-justification of immorality, the pursuit of instant gratification for all desires at the expense of others, viewing others not as people but as objects, 
rejecting reality, rejecting truth, rejecting everything that is not of the self in favor of one's own preferences, and also a rejection of accountability, particularly the ability to love, the ability to understand that love does indeed have a responsibility attached to it. The goals of a Christian life are basic. Jesus himself called them forth. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Second like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. Love everyone made in God's image. Last one, love one another as I have loved you with a promise attached to it that the people who are not of God will recognize Christ in you. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So the transforming power of God, the transforming love of God changes the goals in our lives from glorifying ourselves to glorifying our Heavenly Father to becoming a disciple, a student, a lifelong learner of God's morality, not our own, of disciplining and self-controlling, of taking heed of the Spirit's call to deny the self for the glory of God and for the sake of others, to value others not only as God's creation but as His image, to love your neighbor, to love each other, Because you each carry the divine spark, you are a being of eternal significance and divine worth before God. And we should treat each other accordingly. Accepting the truths of the Bible, no matter how they may challenge us. And accepting the authority of our sovereign God. So turn with me, if you will, in your copy of God's Word to the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. And we're going to examine the love of God in practice. Now remember, in these days, the people of Israel were longing, were hungering, were looking for a Savior. Someone to not only shatter the chains of their sins, but also the chains of their slavery to Rome, to Babylon, to all the other foreign interests that wanted them as slaves. But more than that, they hungered and they yearned for an intimate, personal, and deep relationship with their God, the only God who identified himself as the God of Abraham. So in Isaiah 53, when you get there, say amen. As we read together, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, talking about the coming, the emerging of the, one, of the chosen one, of the Christ, of the Messiah. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. The coming Messiah would have nothing that on his own merit would cause us to flock to him. He wouldn't be somebody who was rich. He wouldn't be somebody with royal grandeur. He wouldn't be someone that you're expecting. He would be different. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. He was held in low esteem. He's talking about the Son of God. 
the Son of God, the light coming into the darkness, and the darkness rejected Him. Verse 4, Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, and afflicted. From the foot of the cross, the people of Israel cried out, Let His blood be on us and our children. If He is the Messiah, let Him save Himself. Let God save him. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his own. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we what? Are healed. A man of suffering from God would pay the price for our debt. So the, the messianic figure that the prophet is talking about would be characterized in this way. He would be despised and rejected by his own people. He would be considered an outsider or an outcast in his own country. He would not be attractive from an earthly perspective as a leader. He would suffer the condemnation of his own. And he would be the substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of others. Does this remind you of anyone? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, valuing the self above all else. The Lord has laid on him, though, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He would, be, he would suffer under an illegal set of trials, in other words. He would be put under something that, that the authorities had no right to do. Pilate was not supposed to put him to death. He was supposed to have had the right of appeal. That was denied him. The priests made up evidence. They paid off people to condemn him, and yet he held his peace through those trials, through all of the show, through all of the oppression, through all of the lies. He did not offer a defense except to proclaim the truth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Even his own disciples did what? They scattered. No one came to his defense. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. It's an interesting phrase, and we're going to come back to it in just a second. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and, though, and through, excuse me, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So on top of it, he would be a sinless sacrifice, offered not by other human beings, but by God. How many religions do you know of where God sacrifices for us? How many religions do you know of where God pays the penalty 
for his creation. He died with criminals, and yet he was buried in a rich man's tomb. He will be resurrected and will see others being saved. This, this is interesting here what the prophet writes, and I don't know that you've heard it preached on many times. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So there's the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for by grace are you saved through For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. A knowledge of Him, an assurance of Him, faith in Him is what justifies. How many of you knew the gospel was in the Old Testament? Knowledge of my righteous servant will justify many, and He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give to Him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong, for he poured out his own life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. By faith, in this coming figure, sinners are saved. And just as in the past they longed for the day to see him face to face, so now do we. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The unfortunate thing about church membership is it's the only case of membership that I know of where in order to become part of the local body, you have to admit first that you don't belong there in the first place. What do we do when we first become Christians? We come to an altar shaped like this during a time of invitation where everyone else is singing. Usually it's a slow, dirge-like song to kind of prompt the mood. But we come down, we kneel in front of the communion table, and we proclaim ourselves, Forgive me, Lord, for I am a sinner. The first rule in becoming a church member is you have to admit you don't deserve to be there. That's our condition. That's all of us. For there are none who are righteous. No, not. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, no matter what your past, no matter what the list of sins is, no matter how much they're read there is in your ledger, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have what? Everlasting life. But first we have to see our condition. We have to know that we need that transforming power. In Ephesians, Paul writes, as almost a commentary on John 3, as for you, you were what? You were dead, incapable of doing work on your own, incapable of judging really the difference between right and wrong, incapable of working yourselves into heaven. Why? Because spiritually, you were dead. I feel like all of a sudden we've gone Presbyterian. I'm running out of other denominations to pick on. Come on, is this a Baptist church this morning? Would you say amen? In which, I know there's a difference, but well. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the, the, the prince of the power of the air in some of your translations. In other words, the devil. Those who do, are not in Christ, simply put, are in the enemy's camp. That's why it's so important that we get the gospel message right, both in the way that we proclaim it and the way that we live it out. The Spirit who is now at work in those 
who are disobedient. All of us. No one is excluded except for Christ Himself. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of what? Of wrath. We were deserving of the anger of God. We were deserving of Him turning His back on us, yet He provided us a means of escape. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, John tells us from the voice of Christ Himself, but that the world through Him might be saved. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but highlight this because it's hardly ever preached on. Whoever does not believe stands what? Condemned already. You don't have to wait for the judgment when all is said and done. If you're outside of Christ, if you've rejected Him, if you've rejected the call for repentance then you're, then the sentence is there already. We don't, through Christ, someone else paid the penalty. Through Christ, the price of our eternal soul has already been saved. All we have to do is accept. Whoever does not believe stand condemns already because they have not believed in the name of God's only begotten Son, His one and only. This is the verdict then. Light has come into the world, but people, the human nature, outside of the influence of the Holy Spirit, the people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds are, by definition, evil, absent of the good of God. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light out of fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth, the truth comes into that light, so that it might be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That's our condition. We stand before a holy God, a righteous God, a God who delights in not only providing us the teachings necessary to live a victorious life, but knowing that we're going to trip up, that we're going to mess up, that we're not going to be able to live it on our own. He grants us two things. Number one, He grants us the grace of forgiveness. And number two, He grants us the indwelling presence and influence of the Holy Spirit of God who gives us the wisdom, the guidance, and the power to be able to live that kind of life if we only trust in Him. Grace, again, is the unmerited favor or unmerited love of God. And this is how Paul goes on to explain it to us. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in, the kindness, in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Did God have to rescue us? Did God have to rescue us? No. But out of His love for us, a love that we could not earn, a love that... There is no way that we could have built in His sight out of His own innate love for us. 
He provided that way. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You cannot work for it. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, freely given. Not by works, so that no one could boast. Because if it could be by works, we would boast about it. We would have sinned. We'd have to go back to square one. But God provided a method through which His grace would abound. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? How many of you knew that you were saved with a purpose? You were saved, equipped, prepared to make a difference in the life of your family, in the life of your community, and in the life of the kingdom of God itself. Prepared, created, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now think about this for a second. With your talents, with your giftedness, with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the way that the Spirit enacts Himself in your life, you are by Scripture claimed to be fearfully and wonderfully made. What does it say when the Creator of all that exists had that kind of awe and respect when He was molding you as a person? Our condition is that we are dead without the Holy Spirit. His grace through the life of, and sacrifice of His only begotten Son paved a way for us to come together and to be part of His kingdom and enter into an everlasting joy. This is the nature of the love of God. For Christ's love compels us. A more literal translation of that word from Greek would actually be impel. Write this down, either in the flyleaf of your Bible or in your notes. In that love of Christ through that word means not only to give us energy, but to give us energy and direction. The image that is shown to us by that word in Koine era Greek is a leaf falling into a stream. The stream not only carries it, it gives it the momentum, but it also gives it the direction. For the love of Christ compels us. It instructs us and it strengthens us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You are not an object. You are not a job description. You are not a favor waiting to be cashed in. You are not a being who's intended for somebody else's pleasure. You are an image bearer of the Most High God. We regard no one from that previous earthly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has, has come. The old is gone, the new is here. The old human nature, the one that saw everyone else as an object, that saw the self being glorified as the only good in this world, the self-bragging, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting person that we once were has gone. If we are in Christ, 
A new creation has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. All of us have this purpose. Not only the guy behind the pulpit, but each and every one of us who claim His grace, who claim His love, who have earnestly repented our sins and are longing for the day of His appearance, appearance, we all have this calling to be His ambassador. So that as Paul puts it here, as though we were making God's appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be what? Be reconciled to God. We should always be ready, from 1 Peter, always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within you. But do this with all gentleness and respect. You are the ambassador of Christ. Just as Christ has loved you. The first challenge, please write this down. The first challenge is that we accept that love and we devote ourselves to it. The first challenge is that we accept that love and we devote ourselves to it. The second challenge is that we exemplify that love before others. That we exemplify that love before others. Be holy as I am holy. Be loving as I am loving. That same agape, self-sacrificing love that God has demonstrated for you, you must be prepared in your own lives to demonstrate it before others. For they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Devote devote yourselves to it. Develop it within yourselves. And lastly, third challenge, proclaim it. Proclaim that love to others. That's where 1 Peter chapter 3 comes in. When others see Christ lived out in you, And they want to know why you have a hopefulness in these dark times. When they want to know why you have that peace of Christ that passes all understanding and you demonstrate it in the way that you react when things fall apart around you. When they see that you are rejoicing in the fact that you're a child of the King in a time when it doesn't make any earthly sense. And when they see that you are a loving person, embracing your brothers and sisters in Christ, not only that but embracing your neighbors who don't deserve it themselves, who might not deserve it themselves in in an earthly form of view, when they see you loving them anyway, being gracious in other words, and they want to know what the difference is, that's when we need to rely on Peter's words for us when he says, be always ready to give an account of the hope that that is within you. Excuse me. And do this with all gentleness and respect because this is the calling not of just the clergy but of all of us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll put it another way. On that cross in Calvary so long ago 
when the skies suddenly went black, as Christ was slowly fading, tacked onto that tree, God did not see his only son. He saw the sin of all of us. As surely as if we nailed him there ourselves. All of our transgressions, all of our mistakes, all of our sins, all of our willfulness, all of our pride, everything that made us separated from our Creator was now all placed on Christ. So that when the day comes, when He looks at you, when our faith is made sight and we see Him face to face, just as He did not see the image of His own Son at the crucifixion, He will see the righteousness, the sinlessness, the agape love, he will see all of that in you. Our sin was placed on him. His goodness and righteousness, the transforming power of Christ's love was then placed on us. Let that love continue to transform you. Let that love continue to strengthen you. And above all, be willing to demonstrate it and to explain it to others. I'll leave you with this story to consider. Generations ago, before the Great Schism, there was a great German monk who was known to be a wonderful speaker. He was invited to be the first person to speak in the castle church at Wittenberg, I believe the story goes. This was a great honor, a new cathedral being dedicated. It would be dedicated on Christmas Eve, and he was to give the first sermon there. And it was a sermon that he knew had to be about love because that's the core of all the Christian life. So he goes to this newly constructed cathedral after spending weeks and weeks and weeks in agonizing prayer and research trying to think of what to say. How does one try to explain love of God in words? So after... The music was done. And he had the opportunity to ascend to the pulpit. He instead went over to the Advent wreath. The Christ candle had been lit. So he removes the candle. And he walks over to the central crucifix. That's a cross with the image of Christ crucified on it. And in the darkness of that night, with only the candlelights providing light, he takes the Christ candle. He starts at the crown of thorns, highlighting it with the candlelight. He moves down to the feet, showing the scars. He moves it over to the, to the left hand, then to the right hand, and he pauses briefly at the scar of the Roman centurion's 
lance. The spear that was thrust in. The Roman centurion that said, surely this must be the Son of God. The monk replaced the candle. And he ascends the pulpit. And he says three simple words. This is love. Have within you the same love that Christ demonstrated to you. Demonstrate and foster that love. Study it. Display it to others. And be always ready, always ready to give an account of the hope that it gives you. And all God's people said, Amen. Heavenly Father, as we conclude the service of the Word this morning, and as we prepare our hearts now for the time of invitation, Lord, as the musicians come, forgive us, we pray, for the times that we have not been a reflection of that love. Forgive us for the times that we have not heard the cry of the needy when we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, when we have not loved you above all, which we are called to do. Forgive us and transform us into a proper reflection. Help us to be the person that you've called us to be, to recognize others as your children, bearing your image, to celebrate you with everything that we are, to hold fast to the faith that you've given us so that we may have peace, so that we may have hope, that we may have joy, that we may have love, and that we may put that on display for others. If there are any within the sound of my voice this morning that have yet to, to, to accept that love, or if there are any that are challenged by that love, if there are any that just need a special touch of the Master to know that they are loved, whatever the case may be, bring them forward to embrace you and to celebrate you before it is everlastingly too late. If there are any that just need to know that you are near through hard times, bring them forward too to accept the warmth of your embrace. Whatever the need is on any heart, Lord, we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. Bring those hearts forward who you will. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. All God's people said. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you and God bless you.